What's up, guys, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Listen to Me Speak podcast. We are on season three, episode 12. And before I start this episode, I want to give a quick shout out to everybody who listened to last week's episode. If you supported it anyway, I appreciate the love, of course. I have a lot to speak about this week, so let's get right into things. So I want to start off with some TV news. I read last night, or maybe a couple of nights ago, that the TV show Queens, which I talked about a lot on this podcast, which starred Brandy, Eve, and Naturi Naughton, was officially canceled at ABC, which I was not overly surprised about considering the views on the show dipped a lot. And they dipped around the time that Eve left because she was pregnant. And for me, that's kind of when the show went downhill. You can tell that the writers didn't have a strong idea for what the show would look like without Eve. It didn't make sense to for the show to continue without Eve. But I understand that she got pregnant. They had to kind of roll with the punches. But unfortunately, I do think that was the show's downfall. And that's not to say that viewers tuned in just for Eve. But I feel like her character was so essential to the show. Kind of like... All of it, the, the show didn't work without all four of them. So when one of them leaves, it just creates this big gap that they tried to fill, fill with other characters, including Muffin, and they tried with Remy Ma's character, and it just didn't work. And so I'm not overly surprised. I don't think it was a show that was meant to last for a long time. I think it really could have went on for maybe three seasons or so, but the show definitely lost steam. It lost direction. And so even though I did enjoy some of the earlier episodes, it's not a show that I'm super sad to see go. Moving on from Queens, rumors are flying that Giselle and Peter, being from Real Housewives of Atlanta, aka Cynthia Bailey's ex-husband, it's rumored that they are dating and he's apparently set to appear in the upcoming season of Real Housewives of Potomac. Now, if you don't believe that, a couple of pictures of them filming at his bar in Miami have hit the internet. So I think that there's some truth to these rumors. Obviously, Peter wouldn't be on Real Housewives of Potomac randomly. Whether he would only be on there if he's friends with one of the women or he's dating one of the women. So I don't know what to think about that. Them as a couple, I just, maybe it's because I find, no offense, I find Peter to be hard to look at. I think he's he was annoying on Real Housewives of Atlanta. Nini kind of, when Nini kind of pointed out the fact that he was always in women's business, I think people ran with that. Because, I mean, there was some truth to that. He was always involved in the drama going on with the women. Kind of like what Joe Gorga is going through now, they're kind of saying the same thing about him. He's always involved in the women's drama. He's practically a housewife himself. These are all things they've said about Joe. There are things, th these are things they've said about Peter as well. So it'll be interesting to see him on the show and see him with Giselle, just because I, I think that's an odd coupling. But I guess Giselle needs a storyline that's very clear. And obviously after things didn't work out with her ex-husband, they needed something else for her. So I guess this is the storyline they're going with. I'll be tuned into the show either way because Potomac has been really good the last couple of seasons. I think they have a great cast right now that really works. I thought Mia was leaving after last season, but I guess that was just a rumor. I'm kind of happy that she stayed because like I said before, she really does bring the drama. And so that's what makes these shows so good. We, we tune in for the drama. I also want to see them kind of get into Ashley's divorce from Michael because I know the other women have a lot to say about that. This is something that I think a lot of us who watched the show saw coming from a mile away because, I mean, Michael was cheating on Ashley left and right. He was 
allegedly grabbing the crew members by, you know, their butts and touching them inappropriately. So it was very clear that he as a person was just unwell and that the marriage and the relationship isn't wasn't meant to last. I think she got what she wanted out of the relationship, which was children. And I don't know necessarily what he got out of the relationship, but I'm not overly surprised that they're heading for divorce. And I think that over the past couple of years, or, you know, during Ashley's whole time on the show, she says a, she said a lot of things about the other women and how they've handled their relationships, including, and, and other people pointed this out, that she got on Robin for how she chose to operate after her divorce, you know, still living with Juan because it made the kids more comfortable. It made it easier for them to transition into the reality of the situation, which is that their parents were not together. And now it's come out that Ashley is doing the same thing with Michael. They still live together because, you know, their kids are so young and it's just easier for them to know, to be more hands-on together and cope. And maybe it makes co-parenting easier. And a lot of people called Ashley out for that because she gave Robin such a hard time, you know, judging her for how her and Juan were deciding to raise their kids. And now Ashley has to deal with it now that she's in Robin's position. You know, she's going through a divorce. She has, you know, they have young children together. They have to operate, you know, as co-parents. So I think that Ashley's probably going to be dealing with a lot of that this season and kind of like eating her own words, I guess. Either way, I think it's set to be a good season. There are a lot of the drama that's been going on, I guess, off camera has been making like the blogs, you know, I'm not Ashley, but Candace and Giselle kind of falling out and going through their thing has kind of hit some of the blogs. So I think when you're currently filming and some of the drama's you know, playing out off screen and on the internet, then that means it's going to be a really good season. So I'm looking forward to it. Moving on from the Real Housewives of Potomac and reality TV in general, I wanted to get into the Good Sam season finale. And this show had, this show, I think overall was solid. I think there were certain things about the show that I didn't care for, particularly the constant back and forth between Sam and her father, which, you know, I get that that was the backbone of the show, but I feel like once they would come to common ground, something else would come up, and then the and then I felt like we were kind of going backwards with the character every time her father would, you know, make positive changes in his life, like going to therapy and accepting his fault in why the relationship between him and Sam was so bad. He would kind of something would come up, and he'd revert back to his old ways. And after a while of seeing that, it got old, even for the first season. I do think that the characters. As a whole, outside of um, Dr. Griffith, obviously, a lot of them, a lot of the character building for a lot of them was done really well. Sam, in the beginning of the show, was obviously someone who tried, you know, her best to do things for the greater good. She had a high moral standing, like she was very ethical. And as the season goes on, you still see her maintain that, but it's kind of like, what's the best way to describe it? she learns to pick and choose her battles instead of holding strong without budging. She learns to compromise both with her father, with the residents that she's um, teaching and just learning to be a little less self-involved. I think she would get so caught up in her family drama that she wouldn't make time for other people, including her best friend, who ends up dating her father, by the way, it was this whole mess. But I'm not gonna get into the whole, whole season because I do wanna leave something for you guys to watch. I do believe it's on Paramount Plus. So you could check it out if you didn't watch it while it aired. 
Now, a spoiler alert, because I am going to talk about some of the details that happened in the season finale. Now, by the time the episode ends, we do... Oh, actually, before we get to the end of the episode. So the basis of the season finale was that after it comes out that Dr. Griffith was drunk and that's what caused the car crash that, you know, put his daughter in the hospital, a.k.a. Sam, he reveals that to the board and... He admits, I believe, that his ex-wife, Sam's mother, I'm, I'm blanking on her name, purposely didn't file the appropriate paperwork to the board telling them what happened. So rather than taking, rather than making Dr. Griffith handle the consequences of his actions, his ex-wife ended up being found at fault because she kept that information hidden. And so we go into the season finale with her job in jeopardy. She doesn't know whether she's going to be reinstated or fired. And by the time we get to the end of the episode, we find out that Dr. Griffith ended up taking the job from her. He Sam ends up getting the um, chief of cardi, was it cardiology? She ends up getting the chief position that was his. And then he, you know, in the beginning of the season, he gets shot, which puts him in the hospital, I think. He was in a coma for several months. And in that time, they needed an interim chief, and Sam becomes that chief. And then once he is recovered, and he goes to therapy, and he kind of gets back into the field, they begin competing for that job, which is which put another strain on their relationship, obviously. And towards the middle of the season, we see Sam kind of wave the white flag and allow her dad to get the job back because she wanted to make peace within her family. And again, it goes back to Sam evolving as a character, just knowing when to give up and when to fight and when to pick and choose her battles and obviously for her father it's an ego thing you know his worth is tied into that position and i think she starts to realize that and realizes that she doesn't like who she's becoming under that role and decides to just allow him to have it but then i think what happened i forgot exactly what this is bad because this I, the show just ended but dr griffith does something that that angers Sam so badly that she puts her hat back in the running for the chief position and ends up getting it, which means that he, Dr. Griffith, is stuck without a, a position on the board or without a high-ranking position, and his ego doesn't allow that. So when he finds out that they're, that a competing surgeon is going to potentially end up with his ex-wife's job rather than allowing Rhonda, I think that's her name, Rather than allowing Rhonda to have that position, he takes it. He tries to frame it as, well, you were going to lose your job anyway, so rather than keeping it outside of the family, I took the position. And obviously, if they get a season two, this is going to lead into Sam and her father being at odds again because he's technically stole the job right under his ex-wife's nose, and it was kind of grimy. This episode ends on a cliffhanger with both uh, Sam's potential love interests kind of arriving at her door and competing for her affections. There, I think his name is Caleb, was who she was dating prior to the show actually beginning. They have a history, but he's an alcoholic, and that was part of the reason why the relationship didn't work. They break up, and she gets with Malcolm, whose father is also on the board along with her parents. And they start dating, but they eventually break up in the middle of the season because they they realize they can't separate work from their relationship. You know, they have so many of their own issues with their family that kind of intersect with each other and get and they, it gets in the way of their relationship. But in the season finale, we find out that the job that Caleb applies for, he ends up getting. So he 
kind of gives Sam the option to give him a reason to make him stay. And Sam doesn't give him a reason. And in fact, she actually offers to write his letter, letter of recommendation. And so the episode ends with him looking like he's going to accept the job. But then after he reads her letter of recommendation, he decides that maybe he wants to make it work. While all of this is happening, Sam actually asks Malcolm out on a date. She wants to start over again. And so they both arrive at her apartment and we find out that Sam's not even there like she was supposed to be. She's too busy fighting with her father. And that's another annoyance I have as well. You ask this man out on a date. She asks Malcolm out on a date and rather than meeting him at the time she said she would meet him at, she's too busy fighting with her father, which leads to their original problems, which is that she can't remove herself from her beef with her father it's like she it kind of reminds me of how on Riverdale Veronica was with her father it's like they both couldn't help themselves it's like they loved fighting with each other they found I don't want to say pleasure in like a sexual way but they got like joy out of it in a way it kept them going and I feel like that's kind of how Sam and her father are they get joy out of competing with each other they don't know how else to operate and I feel like it ruins a lot of Sam's relationships. It ruins her relationship with her best friend because, you know, her best friend was dating him, which I believe was was wrong on the best friend's part. But at the same time, they're all grown adults. I think the best friend was wrong for keeping it a secret, but it's just, it's just odd. I feel like as your best friend, you really shouldn't be dating your best friend's parent, but you know, whatever. But it, but in other ways, it also, because she, Sam was so self-involved and so, and not enthralled, but so involved in competing with her father, it didn't leave room for Lex, her best friend, to confide in her about anything. Even outside of secretly dating her father, there were other things going on in Lex's life that she felt like she couldn't confide in Sam about because she was so involved in herself. I think um, her issues with her father affects her teaching relationship with her residents because all they really sit through is hearing the both of them argue back and forth of, of how to treat a patient and how to handle problems. I'm sure that's not a great learning environment for them. And obviously her relationship with her mother is drained due to the fact that her relationship with her father is drained. And Sam blames her mother for certain things and her mother kept certain things away from her that had to do with her father. So that's another example. And then of course, down to her love life. Now her issues with Caleb were kind of really his fault because of his addictions and you know, his fear of commitment, but her relationship with Malcolm is heavily affected by this because they're both in similar positions in which they have high ranking parents in the hospital. They're both on the board and, you know, they're both kind of fighting for their approval and their affections. And that was the annoying thing for me that got old with the show was her constantly going back and forth with her father and just them never being able to find peace. I think that the show can be more than that. I think obviously they built the show around family dynamics, which is understandable. Both Sam's parents work at this hospital. It makes sense. But I feel like that there was room for us to, even though I feel like the there was great character building for the characters, I feel like we could have um, focused more storylines on some of them, I think. And I don't remember all of their names because again, they weren't the main focus. I think, you know, outside of Sam and her family, Lex had a lot of screen time, which I root for because, hey, you know, she's played by Sky P. Marshall and she's a black woman. So I'm all for a black woman having a lot of screen time. I do think that 
the lives of the other residents should have been included more because also as a part of the cliffhanger, we find out that one of these residents has this huge secret that has to do with why he left his other job at, I guess you could say a teaching hospital. He left and he came to the hospital shows based on, I don't remember the title, I'm so bad. And so I think it would have been a lot more interesting to learn a little bit more about these residents, kind of like they do on Grey's Anatomy. We've learned a lot about some of them, but then there's one resident that, you know, his biggest storyline this season was that he accidentally killed a patient. It was out of his hands. It was just, you know, it was a circumstantial. And I feel like they really could have dived deeper into that. So that's something that the writers can work on for season two if, you know, Good Sam is renewed, just putting a little bit more focus on the residents. I feel like after they built up the characters, they kind of didn't allow the audience to go on more of a journey with them. We were more, more of the more thought provoking storylines came from Sam and Sam's father and the mother and Lex. But, you know, outside of getting to know some of the interns, we, we maybe we didn't get a deeper look into them. You know, we know Caleb is, you know, a recovering alcoholic. We know he has commitment issues. So they built up his character nicely, but I feel like why don't we get a little bit more storylines focused on him and seeing, you know, how he deals with patients because we don't see a lot of these residents deal with patients one-on-one. -on -one. Obviously, they're still learning, but, you know, we don't kind of see more into their thought process and 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 maybe learning about how they got into the program, like just little things like that, if that makes sense. I think season two could focus on that. Obviously, I think the cliffhanger ended. It was a it it was interesting enough for me to tune back into season two. So I think that the finale was written really well. There's a couple of things hanging in balance that I would like to see resolved. And if they don't get renewed for a second season, it will bother me. As far as the chances of the show getting renewed for another season, I do think there's a 50% chance that it could get renewed. I don't know how their viewership has been outside of the premiere and the One Tree Hill reunion episode. I didn't see a whole lot of people talking about the show. Just because I didn't see a whole lot of people talking about the show doesn't mean that, that, they, that they weren't watching. I'm not well-versed in CBS. To me, CBS is kind of a dying channel there are not a whole lot of hit tv shows to my knowledge on there i think criminal minds was the longest running one of the longest running series on the show i know they have swat so they have a couple of shows here and there on the channel but not a whole lot so hopefully good sam could be something different for them because i don't think cbs has a medical show so that could be something that they work with they have a lot of first responder shows so i do hope that good sam gets renewed for a second season, but that's just something they should work on. You know, maybe, you know, obviously with this storyline that they've built up for the second season, it still involves her father and her going back and forth. I understand that. But again, let's leave more room for other characters and, and more insight into their lives. Like I said, the character buildup I think has been good, but I think it's up to a point. Like I would like to We've learned a little bit about their background, enough for a season one that makes sense. You don't want to give everything away. But I would like to spend more time with these characters. And, you know, obviously Sam is the focal point of the show. But, you know, I think they could switch things up a little bit. I think that's what makes shows like Euphoria really good was that they gave each character a background episode. So 
And then they didn't happen back to back. You know, you'd get a background episode on Rue and then a few episodes would go by. Okay, here's one on Jules. You know, they waited till se- till season two to get into Fez's background. So I think giving the fans, you know, more information about these characters a little bit at a time goes a long way and, and allowing us to kind of have time with these characters, giving them 30 minutes of screen time in an episode that's just focused on them would go a long way as well. So I think that's something they could work on for a season two. If they are renewed, of course, I'll come back and watch the show. I'm a fan of Sophia Bush. Even if I'm a fan of you, though, you know, I'm a fan up into a point. If the show absolutely sucks, hey, I gave it a shot. I'm not coming back. But Good Sam does have some potential. So I do hope that CBS renews it. So that wraps up my thoughts on Good Sam in the season finale. I want to move on to Netflix finally giving us some news on Dead to Me. So they announced on Twitter, I believe, that the final season of Dead to Me is set to premiere on Netflix this fall. And I, for me, even though the show had gotten renewed for season three, I think, sometime in 2020, I felt like there was a lot up in the air in regards to that show because of the pandemic and because of Linda Cardinelli's filming schedule because, you know, she did do Hawkeye the series. She plays Hawkeye's wife. And then, of course, with Christina Applegate's health. She, if for those of you who don't know, she was diagnosed with MS. I want to say that she announced that on sometime this year. And I had always heard about MS but didn't exactly know what it was and so I looked it up and it's it's really it's a lot <laughs> it's a it, it sounds like a really painful experience and so I was unsure if she would have the strength to still film for the third season I know she's under contract but you know things ha- happen and your health has to come first and so I was unsure about the show and I'm like well obviously it's going to take them a little bit longer because of all of those things you know I think I saw pictures of Christina on set with a cane I think and it's probably because her legs are killing her and she needs the help to walk around so I did start to wonder and worry about the show and then I follow Netflix on Twitter partially well not really partially entirely to keep up with you know my shows that are on Netflix and just seeing the new releases and you know seeing trailers for new Netflix content before it hits the streaming service and so I went on Twitter one day and I saw that that I think it wasn't the Dead to Me page, but I think it was some version of Netflix because Netflix has all these different pages attached to itself that announced this. Now, I don't really know what to expect for third season entirely. I know that they definitely, it's going to pick up from where their car accident leaves off. And that may be why, that may be why Christina Applegate is walking with a cane on in some of those pictures because her character is severely injured after that car accident. She does take most of the the brunt of she takes most of the impact and so I believe it's what's that actor's name but his character is like driving drunk and rams into their car and Christina Applegate's character Jen she is starting to fall in love with this character she kissed him you know like this was her first time really liking somebody after her husband Ted dies that's what the whole point of the show is because Judy her her newfound best friend ended up being the one to run him over. It's this whole thing. Definitely watch it because it's it's worth your time. I think it's dark comedy done really, really well. And so I think I started watching the show when it originally came out in 2019 because I saw a lot of great feedback 
about the show. And that's kind of how I got into Christina Applegate's work. And I got into Married with Children after just because I loved her portrayal on the show. And I, for me, as someone who wasn't really into Married with Children at all prior to, didn't know Christina Applegate outside of the show, out of outside of Dead to Me. So watching her on Married with Children, I was like, wow. I said, I'm pretty sure she was grateful for this role because it kind of showed people that she was more than just a ditzy blonde character like there are layers to her character on dead to me and it's, you know it's still a comedy but again it's a dark comedy it's you know i don't know if emotionally provoking is a thing but i'm gonna say it it is emotionally provoking and it showed that she can do more than what she was offered on married with children so i am kind of glad that 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 dead to me was the first thing i really watched her on because if i grew up on married with children i probably and even watching some of her other roles, I'm like, she's kind of typecast in some ways. It was like she wasn't able to shake that character and then Dead to Me kind of gave her, no pun intended, a second life. So I've been really waiting for the show to come back for, what, two years now? Maybe maybe a little, maybe a little close to that because I think the second season did air in 2020. So yeah, so close to two years. And so I'm really excited for the show to come back. Like I said, outside of them diving deep into the car accident i don't know else i don't know where else the show is going to go considering it's the final season now obviously one of the bigger plot points of the show has already kind of been resolved judy confessed to murdering ted and because the cop couldn't find ted's body or no no it wasn't it wasn't oh well, yeah she did admit to killing ted but then they also killed Judy's ex-boy, I'm, I'm remembering now, it's been a minute since I've seen the show, obviously. They, Jen murders Judy's ex-boyfriend or fiance, whatever, and they bury him. And so I think Jen goes to confess that and takes the cop to where the body is and the cop can't find the body. So she kind of lets Jen go. And so a lot of those major plot points from season one and two are kind of resolved, which is why they were introducing this new plot point with the car accident. I do think the show could have went on for a fourth season. I am kind of sad that it's ending so soon. But at the same time, it's like a win and a lose situation. A lose for me because I want to see more of the show, but also a win because we know that the show won't continue to drag out. And I think even if they were willing to do a fourth season, everything that's going on with Christina Applegate probably would have ended the show anyway. They probably would have ended it at season three. I, I get the feeling that after this is done, she'll probably retire from acting because uh, battle doing you know what she does for a living while battling MS is probably really difficult. And you know she was on a hit TV show for over a decade. I'm sure those checks are great. And, you know, obviously the checks she gets from Netflix are probably pretty great. So she probably doesn't really have to act again a day in her life. I think she's in her 50s. She's got a child. So I wouldn't be surprised if she kind of retired because outside of doing Dead to Me, she is kind of a recluse. Um, but it, it, it will be sad to see her go because, again, I, I really enjoyed her work on Dead to Me. But all good things must come to an end eventually. So a sequel to A Simple Favor has also been announced. It's apparently in the works with Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively set to come back. Now, I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was really twisty and maybe more thriller-like than dark or, or horror-like. It was more of a thriller. I think 
the plot was interesting enough. The way it ended, I don't know how they could make a sequel work. Most likely they'd have Blake Lively's character come out of jail. And it's making me want to rewatch the movie because it's been years since I've seen it. But if the trailer looks really good, I'll watch it. I just don't know how they can continue the story. But it's been, I think that movie came out in what, 2018? 2017 or 2018 they've had time to sit with where they want to take the story it's possible that while creating the first movie they had ideas for a second film so I'm sure they know what they're doing but like I said I'll see the trailer and see how it looks and if I like the way the sequel is set up then I'll definitely give it a chance because I love the original film a lot. But speaking of continuing stories long after they've ended Zac Efron recently said that he's open to a high school musical reboot but I think with the success of the TV show on Disney Plus, the High School Musical, well, I, I forgot what the title exactly was. It's High School Musical, the series, essentially. With the success of that show and that acting kind of as a reboot with some of the old characters coming back, I think the actor who played Ryan came back. I don't know if Ashley Tisdale came back, but another, another one of them came back. But with the success of that show on Disney Plus for the new generation, I really don't think there's a need for the original cast to come back for a whole reboot or another movie. I think if anything, they can have an episode much like Degrassi did where you kind of bring in the OGs all together and dedicate an episode to them and to where they ended up. Oh, Troy ended up, you know, becoming a professional basketball player, but that's not really how I envision him. I, I see him more ending up in the theater. Um, but, you know, getting dedicating an episode to seeing where all the characters ended up years after high school, I think would be better than doing a whole movie. I don't know if High School Musical works for adults, even though some of them, I kind of think that they were, they were, if they were in their 20s, they were in their early 20s, some of them, when High School Musical was airing. But I just don't think that a grown Troy and Gabriella would hit the same in a musical for us anymore obviously it would be for our age group at that point so we would want some maturity i just don't think it works outside of high school hence the title i that even when they toyed with oh well maybe we can follow them off to college and title it college musical and you know kind of see where they're how they're handling college and adult life even that to me didn't seem interesting enough for me to watch i never watched the sharpay standalone movie i just think that that universe works in high school so I mean, I'm not going to lie if they said, oh, you know, we're, we're doing the movie, we're writing it and Kenny Ortega's coming back to direct and to choreograph. Don't get me wrong. I would give it a chance based off of nostalgia because I grew up on these, these movies, but I don't think it's necessary. But it's cool to hear that Zac Efron is open to it because I always kind of got the feeling that he wanted nothing to do with High School Musical anymore because anytime they would do a 10-year reunion or you know or any type of get together based off of the show he wasn't there and sometimes it was because he was out filming other projects and and I don't know what the other reasons were for but I just had the feeling that he just wasn't interested just because he stopped acknowledging it after a while which is fair so it's good to hear that he'd be open to it that he feels like he's not too big for that time in his life anymore and I do think it would probably be awkward for him and Vanessa Hudgens considering I mean, I'm sure at this point it feels like forever ago since they were together, but they were together for a long time. Their characters were together. I feel like if they came back for a reboot, they would try to put the characters back together even if they didn't last. But I feel like because it's Disney, they would have made it work and they probably would have been the, that 
that rare 1% of high school loves that actually makes it work after high school and college. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up together with kids and, you know, then they had his son or daughter attend East High and then it starts all over again. I'm pretty sure that's the direction they would have went in. But it is interesting to think about. I think as a fan and as, you know, as a writer, I do sometimes revisit some of my old favorite shows and movies. Like recently I've done it with friends where I'm like, oh, you know, if they ever came back, this is realistically a way I think it could work, you know? I think out of the two of them, Chad most likely would have ended up as the professional basketball player. Troy probably would have ended up as like an actor or something. I think Gabriella would have, even though musicals and singing and theater was a passion I think it would have remained a hobby for her and she would have went off into the math field because I think yeah she was in the scholastic decathlon and then she got into college early on a scholarship so I think she would have eventually gotten a job in that field same with Taylor I think Kelsey probably would have ended up be becoming a, a professional composer or like movie scorer or maybe she would have you know, been creating musicals and plays for theater and, and so on and so forth. So it's fun to think about, but I, I do think that we can just leave it alone. I think the TV series is probably achieving what a high school musical reboot would have if it if they had done it. I think we should just leave well enough alone. So that wraps up a lot of my TV and movie related news, but now I want to get into an actual movie review and you already know what that movie is. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Now, I've been looking forward to this movie since they, since I saw the trailer at the end of the Spider-Man film. That ended up being one of the end credits. I think we can talk about that now. And so I was really, really excited. Obviously, I was excited for the Batman too, but I was really, really excited for Doctor Strange because, you know, the trailer for the movie had me excited because I watched What If and the Doctor Strange's What If episode was one of my favorites in the season. And I felt like we all went into it with this certain expectation of the film and what it was going to be like. It was going to pick off, it was going to pick up off of Spider-Man and, you know, this was going to be what starts Kang and, and on all of these things because this current phase in Marvel is really rooted in the multiverse and different universes and variations of these characters. And when you, when you play with a multiverse, it opens up a world of opportunities and so being a huge DC fan and being a huge fan of The Flash and seeing how the Arrowverse kind of handled the multiverse, I felt like was done really well. And because Marvel overall are exceptional storytellers, I feel like if you put something like the multiverse in their hands, they're really going to do something great, right? So I had all of these expectations. My dad had, you know, some of the same expectations. A lot of people all over the world had similar expectations, so we all can't be crazy. And I'm going to be honest, the film was a bit of a letdown. I feel like it tried to do too much at once. So a little summary of the film for those of you who didn't watch the film, who don't plan on watching the film, and just even if you have seen the film, it's always good to give a little bit of a summary. So this movie in chronological order does follow the events of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange is at his ex Christine Palmer's wedding and all of a sudden this huge octopus comes out of nowhere and kind of causes all of this destruction it's chasing after this girl and this girl's name is America Chavez we see her right in the beginning of the film before this scene happens and we see that she has this power to cut through the multiverse and she can't control these powers. So she will randomly fall into 
say, Earth 83, you know, because in one thing DC and Marvel have in common is that they number these Earths in order. I believe Doctor Strange's Earth is 838. I could be wrong. He's either 838 or 616. I can't remember. But you can pretty much fall through, fall in and out of these different universes. Can't control her powers. And so this octopus is chasing her. Doctor Strange saves her life and they find out that she has these powers and that this dream that Doctor Strange kept having was actually real life. And that's when America tells him the theory that, you know, when you dream of a version of yourself doing something, it's not really a dream. It's a memory from another variation of yourself doing it. And so in this variation, he attempts to sacrifice America's life to stop an evil force from, for, from taking her powers for the wrong reasons. And we eventually find out that Wanda's behind all of this. She wants America's powers because she wants to go to a universe that her kids exist in. So we spend this entire film watching America Chavez run from Wanda, Doctor Strange trying to defend and protect this girl because he knows that with her power, Wanda, who's already unbeatable, is going to be even more. And that's pretty much the summary of the film. I guess that's the best way to describe it without giving you everything. Now, obviously, I'm going to be talking about this film in depth, so I'm going to put the spoiler alert warning here. So if you haven't seen the film and plan on seeing it, go ahead. Though, if you're really into Marvel, you probably have seen the movie by this point because you know people can't help themselves from spoiling shit. So I think that's the best summary I can give before I start going, as before I start breaking down this film, saying what I liked, what I didn't like, what went wrong, yada, yada, yada. So rather than progressing Doctor Strange as a character... It focuses more on Wanda and the Scarlet Witch, and it really serves as a sequel to WandaVision. And I feel like instead of putting Wanda in this film and making her the villain, they really should have given the Scarlet Witch her own movie because her character is so intriguing. The Darkhold, the way her powers work, I think it would have been really interesting to give her her own film rather than putting her in this Doctor Strange movie with really weak motives. Instead of her being the main villain, I really felt like it should have been Dark Strange or um, Doctor Strange Supreme. He's referred to as both. It's very clear that this movie was inspired by, or at least some of the movie was inspired by the Doctor Strange What If episode. I think Dark Strange is a very capable main villain. And I feel like he's Dark, Dark Strange by himself is not strong enough to beat Wanda, but Dark Strange Supreme definitely is. And I feel like because of that, he would have been a great idea for a villain. They didn't need Wanda because if you watch the What If episode, Doctor Strange could not defeat him. So I think that rather than inviting Wanda into this film, which was unnecessary, they really should have just kept it contained and kept it a Doctor Strange film because what you end up getting is Doc, you get Wanda featuring Doctor Strange, really. And despite that what if episode being the best episode of season one, the parts of it that are used in the plot of this film fell flat. Doctor Strange beats Dark Strange way too easily. And if you watch the what if episode, they called him Dark Strange Supreme for a reason. Once he consumes Doctor Strange, he becomes unbeatable. I think he would give Wanda a run for her money. And the fact that Doctor Strange beats him so easily with a couple of music notes was frustrating to watch. It felt like, it just felt cheap to me. And I feel like the moment that they both meet each other lacks that intensity that you get from the What If episode. 
And I feel like I could say that for a lot of this film. It, it lacked a lot of the high stakes that we were expecting and it didn't have, it didn't leave you on the edge of your seat. All of the moments that they, all of the moments they tried to convince the audience where big moments weren't, eh, you know, they weren't exciting. And I think that because, and it's not just on us for having high expectations because this movie was built up to be bigger than what it ended up being. A lot of those moments I think just fell flat to me. Returning back to Wanda, I feel like the season finale of WandaVision did a great job at having Wanda make peace with letting her kids, Vision, and Westview go. You see her, you know, make peace with that. She lets them go to save the town. She frees the people. She accepts what she had done. But when you watch this film, it's like none of that happened. And her only motive for wanting America's powers is to be with her kids in another universe. It's kind of a disservice to her as a character and it's also a disservice to the WandaVision finale. I think if she had had a better or more interesting motive, she would have been a better villain in this film. Because it was great to see Scarlet Witch in her full potential power-wise. She was unbeatable. Really, they only they didn't really beat her. She gave up. That's the only reason that they were able to kind of have a happy ending was because Wanda gave up. Because you just can't beat Wanda. And with a character like that, if you gave her a really strong motive as a villain like Thanos, it would have made this movie a lot more interesting. Because again, like I said, a lot of their, those issues and, and, and her dealing with loss was kind of wrapped up in WandaVision. So to have her kind of circle back to that and they can't just say, oh, the Scarlet Witch has taken over because the Darkhold. And so even though Wanda made peace, the Scarlet Witch didn't, it didn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for the Scarlet Witch to want the same things as Wanda because Scarlet Witch essentially, now that she has been brought out by the Darkhold, shouldn't she not have those human motherly, you know, instincts and emotions? I feel like a character like her should have something bigger in mind, you know, for, I think that even if she still wanted to steal, um, America Chavez's powers, it could have been for something better, not just for her kids. You know, I feel like her kids were happy with the other Wanda and all these different universes. So the Scarlet Witch's motive behind wanting America's powers could have just been a lot better. It could have simply have been that she just was power hungry and wanted to be the strongest sorcerer of all time. It could have been something like that instead of what Doctor Strange 2 ended up giving us. So with all of these high expectations that we went into this film having and, you know, expecting these high stakes, by the time you get to the end of the film, the resolution feels cheap and not entirely earned. It came too easy. Like I said, Wanda gives up and Doctor Strange defeats Dark Strange too easily. If nothing else, these final fight scenes could have been something great that they could have given us. It wouldn't have made up for the other flaws of the plot, but at least we would have had these great exciting fight scenes. Now I will say the fight scene between Doctor Strange and Dark Strange was interesting and unique, but again, what I'm going to keep saying is that it lacked intensity. You are faced with one of the strongest sorcerers yourself. And it almost felt like the other variation of Strange that was defeated by the Illuminati was more threatening and more powerful than Dark Strange, which we know is not the case. Now, for me, I went into this film wanting that moment. I wanted a recreation. It didn't have to be verbatim of what happened and what if between Dark Strange and Doctor Strange, because that fight was so intense. 
you know, I really was excited for this film because I loved that episode. And even the parts of that that they included into the film were not done well because they, tr again, they tried to do too much. You don't really have the room to really dive deep there if you have Wanda and her motives and her issues and her storyline going on, which is why I felt like because it's a Doctor Strange movie, Wanda wasn't needed. And I feel like it was a, they pulled the DC with this, as my dad would say, because they let marketing and outside bullshit other than creative purposes get in the way. Because of the success of What If and because of the success of WandaVision, they wanted a guarantee. And because Doctor Strange wasn't one of those big title movies and Marvel that people rushed to see, they knew if they included Wanda in the film and they knew if they teased What If and they knew if they kind of implied that the stakes were going to be super high in this film that people would go see because a lot of us, I think, are still chasing the high that we got from Civil War and Infinity War and Endgame. And you can tell from the writing that that, that was their intentions because there was no real justification for having Wanda in this movie. None. None at all. None that were satisfying. None that made sense for the plot of the overall film. Nothing. Because again, like I said, you didn't really have to... This movie makes it so that whatever happened at the end of WandaVision just was erased. Kind of like what Sony did with their end credit in Morbius. Just erasing Doctor Strange's spell, essentially. And that's frustrating for me as a fan who loves Marvel storytelling, who's where in a, in a with a company or, or a studio that puts storytelling at the forefront. Like their storytelling is really detailed and, and well thought out. And so to have a company like Marvel handle Doctor Strange 2 the way that they did, it's kind of like a slap in the face for me personally. The direction from Sam Raimi was cool. I like that he brought his horror visual style to Marvel. There were some good jump scares and unnerving moments. The ones that stick out to me mostly involve Wanda, her breaking the fourth wall, her emerging from a shard of glass disfigured, or when she appears behind a soldier after messing with his mind and telling him to run before she kind of starts attacking the rest of them. Those were some of the moments that stuck out to me visually. However, there were cuts that made me cringe because the tonal shifts were so abrupt and they clashed. We went from Rami's horror movie take to Marvel and Disney's cookie cutter style. They went from kind of painting this gory and, and grotesque picture to all of a sudden let's cut to Wanda baking in the kitchen with her kids and put on the campy and, and light and um, whimsical music from WandaVision from that sitcom and that sitcom feel that WandaVision kind of had. Let's cut into a scene like that. It just did not work. And again, it's another example of two worlds that they tried to bring together that don't work. Now, Scarlet Witch in Doctor Strange should make sense. They're both sorcerers. They're both some of the strongest sorcerers ever in existence. It would make sense that Doctor Strange is in trouble. He wants to go to someone, uh, who, another sorcerer, someone else who wields magic, who may be able to teach him something he does not know. That would make sense, right? But the way that they put their stories together, the stories they chose for each of the characters, those stories do not involve each other. Doctor Strange has nothing to do with Wanda and her kids in Westview. He has nothing to do with that. Wanda has nothing to do with these other Doctor Stranges that Doctor Strange was encountering or America Chavez. She has nothing to do with that. They really only brought her to... The only tie-in is that she wants to kill America for her powers and Doctor Strange won't let that happen. 
But when you watch this film and you see some of these cuts happen, those shifts, those tonal shifts are that much more obvious. And another reason why this film just did not work. It felt like Doctor Strange 2 should have just went fully dark. I think it should have just been... Obviously, it's a Marvel picture, so Kevin Feige and you know the Marvel team have to be involved. But I feel like in the director's chair, it should have just been Sam and his vision. It should have been totally his vision. It should not have been an attempt to try to bring two worlds together. That one scene where the two strangers are fighting each other using music notes from the piano, I'm stuck between finding it super unique, because it is, and also finding it corny and kind of campy. You've never seen people fling music notes at each other through magic to try to to kill each other or harm each other. I think it was something bold and maybe it was Sam trying to think outside of the box. So I don't know how to feel about it. I'm 50-50. It was an interesting fight scene. I just don't think it makes sense for Doctor Strange. I never knew him to heavily be into music like that. So it doesn't really... It didn't really make sense, but it was, like I said, it was something I had never seen before. So I guess I can give him props for that part of it, at least. One aspect that this film kept from the What If episode that I really am glad they kept was the Doctor Strange and Christine dynamic. Obviously, if you watched the original film, the first one, you kind of know more about their history. They were together. You know, he had a huge ego. He put his career before her, you know, it was just hard to kind of like what I talked about with Good Sam. It was hard for them to keep their personal life away from their professional life and they end up breaking up. He gets into a horrible car accident, yada, yada, yada. And so the basis of the what if episode is that what if Doctor Strange lost his heart instead of his hand and in the what if episode, Christine Palmer dies and this other version of him wants to bring her back to life but he alone does not have the power to do that and so he starts absorbing these magical beings to become the dark strange supreme and in the end ends up killing the original dr strange to inhabit his power and bring christine back to the dead it goes horribly wrong and it causes the total collapse of the universe now when you know that king is coming and that this whole phase is you know dealing with the multiverse and they tease some elements of what if in this Doctor Strange episode, you go into this movie thinking, okay, this movie is going to be really off the charts because, you know, this is going to be the start of the collapse of everything that goes wrong because that's what happens in the what if episode, right? And so that was Doctor Strange's main motive in those episodes. And the question that keeps occurring in this film is, Stephen, are you happy? Christine asks him that in the beginning of the movie. Dark Strange, a variant of his asks him if he's happy and admits that he's not and then towards the end of the film Doctor Strange asks Wong if he's truly happy so there's this reoccurring theme of happiness in this film and it ties into the what if episode because you see the Doctor Strange and Christine dynamic you see that he ties his happiness into her whether she's with him or not will determine whether he's happy. And by the time we get to the end of the film, you do, even though this film does not do a whole lot of progression for the character, it does a little bit in the fact that he has finally learned that he is at least trying to work on being happy and that his happiness is no longer tied to Christine. It doesn't have to be in every universe. Him and Christine cannot make it work. And it's for a reason. And so I'm really glad that they at least kept that, that dynamic because it did allow for a little bit of, Doctor Strange's progression as a character and because it was the core motive for Dark Strange in the What If episodes, it does make sense that she was heavily involved in 
this Doctor Strange film. So I'm glad they at least kept that. For those of you who didn't watch the What If episodes, you may have thought it was unnecessary, but I do like that they included that. It humanizes Steven, you know. And obviously in the comics, he does end up, I believe, with Clea, who, spoiler alert, is teased towards the end of the movie in an end credit, played by Charlize Theron, which she's an incredible uh, action movie star, so it'll be interesting to see her try her hand at Marvel. Um, but they've had Angelina Jolie now and she's incredible as an action star as well so it'll be interesting to see how she is in Doctor Strange I hope she's not super super campy but I think that they did a good job of kind of tying up that end that that loose end with Christine Palmer and Doctor Strange and I absolutely love Rachel McAdams so I was glad that she had a bigger role in this film, it seems like a lot of her characters die, so I'm glad that Christine Palmer <laughs> didn't die in this film. I was fully expecting her to because I feel like it's like Queen Latifah says, once you die once real, real good, they keep killing you. So I was glad to see that her character made it out alive. I don't think she'll be in the next Doctor Strange movie. It doesn't make sense for her to be, but I am glad that she was able to kind of have more of a role, an active role in this film. My negative review of the movie aside, I do think that the cast were great in their roles, all of them. It's just too bad that they weren't given a great story to really work with. I do hope that the third Doctor Strange movie is stronger in terms of writing. The rating I give this film is a 2 out of 5. So that wraps up my thoughts on the Doctor Strange sequel. I hope it wasn't all over the place. I felt like I tried to discuss as much of it as possible. Like In some ways, I feel like maybe I could have dived a little deeper, but I don't want to put you guys fully to sleep. So I feel like those were a lot of the major points I wanted to hit up on the film. For those of you who have seen the movie, please let me know what you thought, whether you agreed with me that this movie was kind of disappointing or you think I'm completely bugging and really enjoyed this film. I'm open to all different takes. Let me know what you thought of the film. So moving on from Doctor Strange 2 and into some music news, I'm going to start off with probably one of the biggest stories going on right now, which is that Young Thug, Gunna, and YSL members have been arrested on, 56, on a 56 count indictment and are being hit with RICO charges. According to TMZ, this is a quote from them, both MCs have been accused of possession and intent to sell a variety of narcotics, receiving stolen property, and for general street gang activity. They were also charged with being part of a larger criminal enterprise comprised of YSL associates who are alleged to have been involved in a bunch of crimes, including the attempted murder of YFN Lucci. When this news broke, I was shocked because, especially in New York, but just in general, when Rico charges are at play, you're in some deep shit. They don't play about Rico, okay? Once they get you on that, best believe they're trying to take you down. You're gonna, you're not gonna walk away with no charges. You're gonna walk away with something. A Rico charge is hard to shake off unless you snitch. And considering snitching is something that both Young Thug and Gunna have condemned heavily. I don't see them doing something like this. Now, some people have been up in arms because I think an article came out or maybe it was like a, a news reporter saying that Gunna's charge had to do with him, you know, wearing certain jewelry and saying certain things in his music because both Young Thug and Gunna are, I guess in their case, their lyrics are involved. 
And of course, we know that law enforcement kind of has a disdain for hip-hop. And they, they call it the hip-hop police for a reason. A lot of rappers are targeted because of their music and certain things that they say. But people also have to realize, while that is true, that some of these rappers aren't smart by confessing to some of their crimes in their music. I mean, it, I think it happened to Bobby Schmurder. I think that's part of the reason he got caught up. And you know they did the same thing to 6 9 So that's the first thing they look for. And if you put it in the music or you put it on social media it kind of makes it easy for them to go and, and, and charge you with something or connect it to a crime because you are essentially confessing to it. Now, I think what a lot of people have twisted in Gunna's case is that, be, and, I, and I blame this a little bit on the article too, it makes it seem like Gunna's just being charged because of his lyrics and because what he, the jewelry that he wears and the money that he flaunts. From the article I read from TMZ and various other news articles, it's that those are being looked at as evidence. It's not the sole reason for him being charged. Now, at the time when a lot of this was floating around, some people weren't sure. But today in a lot of the articles I read, he really was arrested because of his association and things that they're alleging that he did because of his association to Young Thug and YSL. It's not really solely because of lyrics. Now, because music is an artistic expression, you could say that it's not fair that they're doing this. I could see it from both sides. I do think that if you really are involved in gang culture and you're doing certain criminal activities, I really don't think it's smart to put it in your music because once they catch you and they, and they bust you down for something, then they're going to look at the music, of course. Of course, that's the first thing they're going to look at. Well, Young Thug talks about popping niggas, so, you know, we're going to use that as evidence. It, you know, it is what it is. He, he talks about doing drugs, so that's the first thing they're going to look at because they, they are public figures. And when you put out music, it becomes public information. You're kind of snitching on yourselves in a way. So this is just another example of the path that a lot of these rappers are heading down. And I think that ties into a lot of what Kendrick Lamar is saying in his new song, which is what I'm going to talk about directly after this, where the culture is just eating itself alive. I just read something about, I think, is it Rod Wave? He's a rapper I don't listen to. He just got arrested for choking his ex-girlfriend. So it's like a lot of these rappers, one by one, are getting arrested. I believe they said that Casanova just pled guilty to something and he faces between 5 to 60 years. So a lot of these rappers are their own downfalls. And this is just another sad example of it. You know, what's going on with Young Thug and Gun? It's like they never learn. They don't learn from the artists that came before them. And whether we like 6 9 or not, they didn't even learn from 6 9 No, they're not snitches. But... Six, part of 6 Nine's issue was that he was doing things in public fashion. He was saying certain things in music. He was saying and doing certain things on social media. And it sounds like Young Thug and Gunna are no different in that sense where they're putting, they're saying certain things in their music. They're not learning from Bobby Shmurda, who did seven years because of something like this. Or even Fat Joe, who said that, the, I, I believe it was him when he, they were trying to warn 6 9 about the path he was heading down, saying that, you know, the, the hip, the police used to watch him too. I'm pretty sure they used to watch a lot of them. Look at T.I. So it's just sad to see history continue to repeat itself over and over again. So we'll see where this case ends up taking them. They're in a lot of trouble, it sounds like, though. It's a 56-page indictment. It's crazy. So this leads perfectly into Kendrick Lamar in his new single, The Heart Part 5, which has been teased, I think, since he started teasing those folders and apparently Spotify had 
put out a This is Kendrick Lamar playlist and highlighted the heart part five and I think the description before quickly taking it down. So I think a lot of us were anticipating the heart part five. And I think sometimes when artists do things with one rollout, we kind of want them to do it again for another. He dropped the heart part four before damn. And so here comes the heart part five. I don't know if he consistently adds onto the series before every album. He might. I don't know if he did one before to pimp a butterfly. Could have been part three. But either way, we have officially started off the rollout for Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. Kendrick has also released the official cover art to his album, and it's I absolutely love it. It's beautiful. It's him, his wife breastfeeding their what looks like newborn child, and him holding his daughter in his hands, and the daughter's the only one facing the camera. He's facing away from the camera. The wife is looking down at the baby, and the baby's obviously breastfeeding. There's just something about you know, the photo that's just, it's very simple, but it also says maybe everything he needs it to say. I, I really do love the album cover. So let me get into the actual song itself. So the heart part five is what I, and this is my takeaway from it. I know a lot of people are getting a little out of control with some of the takes from the song. You know, art is meant to be dissected and perceived in different ways. I respect that. But some people's takes, they're just, they're reaching or they're doing a little too much. But this is really my takeaway from the song. I feel like it's an observation on how the culture is killing us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. The song is backed by Jazzy, 60s Styles Production, which isn't entirely foreign to Kendrick. I said before on this podcast that I envision this album kind of having a big band, 60s, jazzy type of vibe. And from this song alone... You can't really go off of just this because this is just the bus single. It's not even really the lead single. But from this song alone, it does play into my theory about the album. So it could be accurate. I guess we'll end up finding out this Friday. This song is also about perspective. Both Kendrick's, Nipsey's, and other people's. This is all emphasized by the music video where Kendrick transforms into several controversial and highly regarded black men in the industry. From OJ Simpson to Kanye to Jussie Smollett. Certain lines are intentionally paired with certain faces in the music video. For example, quote, friends bipolar grab you by your pockets. No option if you froze up, always play the offense. is paired with Kanye's face, most likely because he's bipolar and that explains his erratic behavior. And also the line, the streets got me fucked up. Y'all can miss me. I want to represent for us being paired with Jussie Smollett's face. This is why I see this song as an observation more than a critique or even judgment. Rather than demonizing people like Jussie and Kanye, like most of us have done, he attempts to see things from their perspectives. Kanye's mentally ill, and though he may think he's helping the culture and the people around him, he's actually hurting himself and some of those people. For Jussie, he wanted to show the world, hey, this is what happens to black and gay people every day, pay attention. And while those may have been his intentions, he went about it in a horrible way that actually harmed us more than did us any good. And then the culture turned on them both for those reasons. Will Smith's face is also paired by the lines, in the land where hurt people hurt more people, fuck calling it culture. Obviously, this is on the heels of Will Smith slapping Chris Rock on stage, and a lot of people at this point can figure out that Will Smith is clearly hurting. 
both in his marriage and as an individual. And there's that quote that people often say that hurt people hurt people because you have nothing else to do with this hurt that's bottled inside of you. All you can do is kind of spew it out to other people. And obviously, Will Smith's actions that night, whether we agree with them or not with how he handled things, it was more to do with what he had going on internally than maybe Chris Rock's stupid joke. And that high, that line really highlights that. And it, it's, again, another observation and take on the culture and how quickly I think people turned on Will Smith after that moment where he just had a human reaction. Because at the end of the day, all of these people that Kendrick Lamar is becoming in this music video, himself included, they're human beings and they're flawed. And the culture, as much as it can uplift us and do things for us, it also hurts us too. And these people that he has become in the music video are prime examples of that. So I do think he went about choosing, I think, the right men to portray in this music video. As you guys know, I'm not a huge, huge fan of Nipsey Hussle and his music. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I was just never into it when he was alive. But I feel like as a person who was not really a fan, just observing from the outside looking in, that Kendrick Lamar, his tribute outside of YG's and Big Sean's was probably one of the more respectful and more genuine tributes. I feel like Kendrick took on the perspective of, of Nipsey to give a lot of people closure from fans to his loved ones, his brother, Lauren London, and Lauren London positively react to this. So I always pay attention to that. I'm like, if, if Lauren London is, if she approves, then it must be, it must have been okay. It, it must sit well with, with her and his family. She's really, I think, because she's a, the public figure, she is the mouthpiece for him. And if she approves, then most likely Nipsey probably would have approved because, you know, she was his right hand. And it provides closure. It's, I think, even for Kendrick, it he probably sat and thought, what would Nipsey say? You know, what would he do? And he chose to go through a path of forgiveness, which is the complete opposite of what Kendrick is talking about on other parts of the song, where the culture is unforgiving. And now he's taken on Nipsey and he's portraying him and saying, you know what, what you did was fucked up, but I forgive you. Let's just, let's get some peace out of this and, and let's focus on, let's try to find a positive out of my death, which is my legacy and, and people continuing on with the marathon and things like that. So I do think it was really respectful and I think therapeutic for a lot of people, what Kendrick said in that verse, because I think a lot of people probably long to hear it from Nipsey himself but obviously he's not here to do that so Kendrick took that on for him on his behalf this song was this song definitely feels like it was created in the earlier parts of the pandemic where I, I often call it pandemic albums where artists were really taking a look within themselves and the world and really just you saw a lot more not just social commentary but just these artists having really deep self-reflective moments and just being human and this this song feels like a product of that time. And I wouldn't be surprised because he was um, spotted filming music videos in 2020. So it's possible that a lot of this album was recorded then, or maybe one disc was recorded. If we're still running off of the double album theory, maybe the first disc was recorded in 2020 and then the rest of it was completed in last year. 
I don't, and it's possible he could have been doing some finishing touches, but I think the bulk of this album was probably created in 2020 and 2021, but the song definitely gives me that feeling. Oh, and I also forgot to, to mention this point too, when, when talking about Nipsey's, you know, talking about the, the verse from Nipsey's perspective. I think also what's interesting about the song is that the hook on the heart part five almost does the opposite of what the verses are saying. It's, he's begging the hood and the culture to love and respect him. He says, I want you to want me to look what I've done for you. And I think again, back to the 2020 part, when a lot of the black lives matter protests were going on and a lot of people were calling for J. Cole and Kendrick to speak up because especially Kendrick, this man wrote to pimp a butterfly. So this is a man that we've come to rely on for social commentary and for, you know, moment uh, music that that makes us really think and want to be better people so i think that hook is a reflection of that like i want you guys to love and respect me because look at this music that i've given to you i've given you to pimp a butterfly i've given you music that remains a staple or a standard for what maybe other people in my lane want to do or what every or what listeners kind of just inspiring them to be better so I thought the hook was interesting because it's the complete opposite of what he's saying in the verses of, I want you to want me, I want you to love me and to respect me and and to love me as much as I love you, you know? But all in all, I think The Heart Part 5 is a great way to start this uh, album from him. I think we're, we're looking good so far, you know? I don't have any real, you know, doubts or worries about this. I think he's taken his time for good reason. He's really thought about where he wants to go musically, and I just can't wait. As far as the actual album, I this is kind of, okay, so I'm gonna split this in two ways. I'm gonna say who I wanna see on his new album and realistically who I think will be on his new album. So for features, I would love to see Cole. I would love to see Big Sean, The Weeknd, Corday. For producers, I'd love to see DeMille. I'd love to see Mike Will Made It. I'd love to see Soundwave, he's worked with him before. So those were some of the people that I could really think of of who I, I wanted. I would and I and for years I really, really wanted a Nicki Minaj and Kendrick Lamar collaboration. I don't know where this album is really heading, so I'll add Nicki Minaj to that list too. I'd love to see them work together because I feel like they're both super animated and so they could come up with something crazy. As for people I think will most likely actually be on the album, I, I see J-Rock, definitely. Baby Keem goes without a doubt. Sir, Mike Will, as I see, I want him on the album and I see him actually being on the album. Ninth Wonder I see, because he was on Damn and, and they created some some dope stuff together. I think Soundwave will, will end up on the album as well. So those were kind of the people I could put together. SZA, I'm not sure. For some reason, I don't see SZA on this album. I don't see Schoolboy Q on this album. I really don't see him trying to do a last TDE hoorah on the album because Kendrick doesn't strike me as a guy who tries to force something to come together if it's not natural. So for some reason, I can't see SZA being on this album. I won't be mad at it if she is, though, because you know I, I love SZA. And she's definitely next. After Kendrick drops his album, I'm not trying to hear nothing Punch or Top Dog has to say. We need this as an album before the summer ends, 100%. So moving on from Kendrick Lamar, Chris Brown announced that his new album Breezy will drop next month. He hasn't given an official date or a cover yet, but I think ever since he's been kind of on his own imprint at RCA, 
He's been in control, so I can't see this album really being delayed, especially because he has a joint tour with Little Baby coming up in, I think, July. So June, really, it has to be June for him. He's kind of had a muted and kind of lukewarm response to a lot of the music he's, well, not a lot, but the, the two singles he's put out. I particularly love Warm Embrace. I, it's the bag I want him in. I don't see a whole lot of people talking about that outside of core fans. If he had a lukewarm response... So he hasn't really had a whole lot of buildup or excitement. He's had a lot of controversy in the middle of this rollout that I don't think helped. So we'll see how this album ends up turning out. I feel like it'll be all over the place. And for his 10th album, I kind of wanted an album where he just went back to his roots. It, it made sense. I mean, the fact that he even said it's going to have the same amount of songs as my debut album. I think it had 16 tracks. I wanted something more back to his roots. But if he doesn't sound like that, I'm really hoping he leaves that song off of it. So moving on to some more music reviews, these next two songs I'm going to talk about, I really don't have a whole, whole lot to say, but wanted to mention them. ASAP Rocky dropped a new single, DMB, aka That's My Bitch, and the song was whack. I think it only got the attention that it did because Rihanna was in the music video. Obviously, they're, you know, they get married in the music video, so everybody was talking about that. She's pregnant in real life, and so I think ASAP kind of just took an opportunity to to use his real life to promote his music and to maybe get people to stop talking about maybe some of his legal troubles. The song, like I said, was whack. I don't think ASAP Rocky has been has put out good music since about what 2015. It's 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 kind of sad because he really used to be dope and just I don't think his focus is in the music anymore. And it's it's you can tell by by listening to the the few songs he does put out. You can tell it's just he he's kind of washed now. As far as Logic, whose last few songs I didn't give great reviews to, Therapy Music featuring Russ is much better. Again, it has that that rough kind of unpolished 90s vibe to it, which is what Vinyl Days is supposed to be. You can tell that, again, it's another sample. I can't place the sample, though it sounds familiar. Russ gives Logic an incredible verse. Log Logic puts out an incredible verse on this song. It was a good collaborative effort. I'm surprised it took them this long to link up and do a song because they kind of have the same, I don't know, they have the same energy about them, the, the underdogs that can rap, but you know, there are certain things stacked against them. So it was cool to see them on a record together. I hope the rest of the album is more like therapy music and, and not really the other songs we got, those to me were, were just songs that deserve to be two packs to hold us over, but not make the album. So moving on to an, my first album review of the episode, I'm going to start off with Heart on My Sleeve by Ella May. So Heart on My Sleeve is a body of work filled with enjoyable songs, but in Ella's four-year absence, it shows absolutely no progression. The production, themes, and lyrical content are just an extension of her debut album a sequel of sorts that doesn't move the plot any further. For an album titled Heart on My Sleeve, the music lacks any real emotional depth. I know we all joke about Ella talking in her songs, but on this album she has Mary J. Blige, Kirk Franklin, and Lucky Day do the talking. What would have been a dope idea is if she had added artists known for putting emotional depth in their music onto her album as features and even spoken words, or in, even, even doing spoken words towards of the the ends of the song or the beginning of the song. For example, like Mary J, which she had on the album, Keisha Cole, Giveon, artists like that. I think it would have tied heavily into the heart on my sleeve theme because she doesn't really 
stick to the theme all that much. You have Mary J speak on a couple of songs, but I felt like she could have played in more into that. Kind of like how I felt about Certified Lover Boy. Like when you have a certain title like that and a certain theme, you really have to play into the theme for it to work or just that the album kind of falls flat. In a lot of ways, this album sounds like something that Ella enjoyed making for fun, but doesn't really leave you with much, if that makes sense. Like, I believe that during down, during an artist's downtime, they just sometimes just have fun making songs that they don't plan on doing anything with. It's just to flex their creative muscles. I felt like this was that kind of album for her, where she had fun putting the songs together, but it wasn't an album meant to, to really be out, or it wasn't an album that had a whole lot of effort put into it. I wasn't expecting something extremely deep from her, but I do think that with her album title, she should have given at least more emotional maturity and also worked less with DJ Mustard. I know that sounds bad because he signed her, but some of the best moments on her album is when she's working with producers other than him. And though he's evolved as a producer, it seemed like he devolved on this album. Ella does sound great on this album. Like I said, I enjoy a lot of the songs. It's just nothing new it's nothing exciting they're just good songs like that's really all i can say because there's no progression if you close your eyes and put um her debut album and this album on a playlist and put it on shuffle it really sounds like one album altogether one really long album my top tracks are not another love song which i've already discussed leave you alone as well i gave a review power of a woman a mess and feels like so I'm going to start off with Power of a Woman. I love the production on this song. It's led by an acoustic guitar with light, mellowed out drums. It allows Ella's vocals to shine and she sounds great. I do wish she featured Mary J. Blige on the song. It's definitely her bag and sound and also the message of the song as well. I mean, she has a whole festival dedicated to um, the power of women. So that would have been a great fit. Power of a Woman is one of the few times where I feel like she dipped her toe into something new. My favorite lines are, quote, my kisses send in signals off inside you till you feel the power of a, my levels got you rising, now you know there's something about a power of a woman. The next song on my list is A Mess featuring Lucky Day. Lucky Day is really great at doing duets with women, and A Mess is no different. I think that's why he put out that EP that featured all female artists and it fell flat which which was kind of why I I was kind of shocked that it fell flat because he has such great chemistry with women on songs so I do understand why he did that EP it just didn't work the songs weren't strong enough but this song is really really good Ella's and Lucky's voices mesh really well with each other's I feel like the art of duets is something missing from music overall but I'm glad to hear more current R&B singers do them more and more They have good chemistry between each other, and it's one of the highlights off of the album, of course, because it's on my list. My favorite lines are, quote, I don't want nothing less. Can't lie, I must confess. For me, you are the best. No, this might be a mess. The last song on my list is Feels Like. What I love about this track is the production and Ella's cadence against the beat. I love her start-stop approach in the chorus before the beat drops again. Her voice just sounds so effortless on this, like it slides over the beat. I also really like the melody too. Melody goes a long way. This is also one of the beats that sounds so distinctly different than the rest of the production on the album. My favorite lines from Feels Like are quote, and if I'm investing my evenings on you, then you better fucking please me. 
While I enjoy a good amount of songs on Heart on My Sleeve, I can't say that it'll be an album I heavily return to after this year outside of a couple of songs. Moving on to an album that really just was <laughs> not a whole lot of positives to say is Come Home, The Kids Miss You by Jack Harlow. This album is a generic pop rap album with corny, one-dimensional bars and wordplay. And I don't know what went wrong. I didn't listen to his debut album, and while I won't say it was lauded, it was positively received. And he had a standout verse on Industry Baby. He had, I felt like, decent lines on Tyler Harrow and First Class and Nail Tech. It was all of these songs that even made me consider giving Jack Harlow a chance because when he dropped his debut album in 2020, I'm like, eh, it's probably another white boy that's overrated that can probably rap decently enough and he gets to pass, you know? And then when I heard Industry Baby and I heard some of the singles from his debut album and some of the singles off of this uh, this album, I said, okay, I'll give him a chance. He'll be one of those generic pop you know, rappers that, you know, gets me hype in the car, in the club, whatever. And this album was genuinely terrible. And I'm not saying that to be like an asshole. It just was like, I really went into this album with an open mind. And anybody who came out of that album really thinking it was something greater that Jack's next up just because, you know, Drake is kind of co-signing him. You're out of your fucking mind. This album was horrible. There are tons of cringy and bad lines. It's, it's laughable. That's how bad these lines are. Examples include, quote, I'ma fuck the earrings off of you. Who thinks to say that on a song? Like, that? Who? I don't know. Why did DJ Drama listen to this line and go, yeah, we're keeping that on there. That'll go. That works. He's also got a line that goes, quote, I ain't like that CD boy. You better eat them Wheaties, boy. This is not Vanilla Ice or Beastie Boy. So much bread in my account, that shit is yeasty, boy. You just said you're not Vanilla Ice, but your lines are as weak as Vanilla Ice's lines, from what I've heard. And there are a lot of other cringy lines that there are too many to name. He also has a line from the track Young Harleezy, where he mentions having sons like Nicki Minaj, which is funny to me because Jack is the son in every definition of the word. He's a very one-dimensional, watered-down version of Drake. He's what Drake sounds like if he were to rap with 30% effort. You can't have sons when you barely make an impact yourself and when you're a cheap imitation of another artist. There's nothing about Jack on this album that stands out. There's nothing that puts him in his own lane. He doesn't have a quirk or a characteristic about him that sets him apart from his peers. And to say lines that boldly like that, when you are very new to the game essentially, this is your second album, it's funny to me. It's not believable. You're hyping yourself and your talent up to be something more than it's not, in my honest opinion. He has one flow that works for him. It's cool on singles like Tyler Harrow and Nail Tech and First Class, but on a whole album, it gets tired very, very quickly. Very quickly. Jack Harlow seriously needs to improve his pen if he wants to last. His rhyme style and wordplay is very elementary level, and that's not me trying to be harsh. It's very true. It's made more obvious when he's ramp rapping alongside vets like Wayne and Drake. He raps the way people rap when they're just starting out at like 10 or 11, when you're just learning to put words together. His wordplay is like there's just no effort into trying to make them work. And I feel like if you're not good at that, don't try. 
Because when you're not good at it and you put out the kind of lines that Jack tried to to make really work, like, you know, I'm on Angus Clown 9. Like, if you can't really put out something super clever, it's just not even worth trying. Just stick to to what you did on Tyler Harrow. Just make words rhyme and and, and and don't try to do anything else. I think a writing camp could seriously improve his music or just do what a lot of these other people are doing and get a ghostwriter because Jack is not a strong writer. The production overall was a lot better than the actual songs themselves. He worked with a lot of great producers from Pharrell to Boy Wonder to Timbaland and more, so this is not a surprise. Though the Pharrell song was horrible. That movie star record, complete garbage. Some of my favorite beats on this album are Churchill Downs, Poison, and Little Secret. Come Home The Kids Miss You has a couple of good songs, but when we wrap up the year, it will be an album that is entirely forgotten. I'm not going to break down any of the tracks I like because there's really not much to take away from them. Um, Some of my favorite songs include Poison, which features Lil Wayne. Like That's a song that I actually will continue to run. Because the sample is great, the beat is great, Wayne's verse is great, and and Jack Harlow's verse on this isn't half bad. Of course, I love First Class and Nail Tech. Churchill Downs grew on me. I still don't love the push lines. I think they're unnecessary and weak. But I do like Drake and his conversational bag. I think he's been a little lazy with that lately, where it's, it's not as thought-provoking as it used to be from him. But the beginning of his verse starts out strong. He's kind of giving certain gems away, you know, admitting that he's in therapy, trying to work on himself, which is, is always great. You know, you always want a little bit of vulnerability in, some, in the music, so I'm glad he included that part. And I think I mentioned Little Secret, but Little Secret, Secret is another song I like. It's a nice little lovey-dovey for the radio record that I'm not mad at. But that pretty much wraps up my thoughts on Jack's new album. So before I end the episode, I want to get into the song of the week. And the song of the week is Any Given Sunday by Kehlani featuring Blast. Now on on the last week's episode, it was in my top five for my favorite tracks from the album. And it's just a song I constantly, constantly return to. I love the vibe. Like I said, it's one of those songs that if you want to get to know Kehlani as an artist, like that is her... That shows her personality through and through. So if you haven't listened to Blue Water Road yet, definitely check it out and definitely check out this song. So we have reached the end of the episode. Thank you for listening to me rant and ramble for over an hour. But like I said, I had a lot to talk about. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. If you did, then please head to Apple Podcasts or anywhere you rate podcasts and give Listen to Me Speak a five-star rating. I'd really appreciate it. If you want to keep up with this podcast further, then please head to my website, www.listentomespeak.com. There are links to all of my social media. I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm even on YouTube. And if you really enjoyed this podcast, please consider donating to my listeners' donations, which can be found on my Acre page or my website, which is again, www.listentomespeak.com. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak.